Well, I'm glad that you uh, came out for this third message in our series of messages, primarily about family called Arrows Living Towards the Mark. And hey, you all made it here with no social media posts this week promoting my message. Because this week, I want to talk about identity and sexuality and how we as followers of Jesus who live and love like Jesus are to navigate in a world where biological sex does not necessarily define your gender. What are we to do with that? And yeah, we did not promote this on social media. Can you figure out why? Sometimes it's just wise not to create a public firestorm, especially in the world of social media. Hey, even here this morning, we have a very diverse group when it comes to what you believe about sexuality and gender. So I'm going to ask you all to listen very carefully and gracefully. And this is complex stuff. So I apologize in advance. This message is long, okay? It's real long. And I've warned Kid City, so now I'm warning you. But the topic for the topic, it's actually too short. It is what it is, and hopefully it will be helpful. Now, the story of the Bible is the story of people who are really messed up and broken by sin. And it's the story of our God who is crazy in love with us and makes a way for us to walk with him despite our messy lives. And our God, he's not surprised by the sudden rise in the number of young people and adults who now identify as transgender, non-binary, or fluid in their gender. And he loves every one of them, including any of you here who identify in these ways. He is your creator, and he loves who he has created. Those of you who are church-raised, you know that there was this very religious guy who took the law of God very seriously, and he wanted to test Jesus because he thought Jesus was a, a bit liberal in his theology. So he asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And Jesus proved the Pharisee's point when he led with love. But he also confounded that Pharisee when he said all of the law hangs on love. All of it. Love God, yes, but also love of your neighbor. And that's all of your neighbors, all of them, regardless of their sexual orientation or the pronouns they choose to identify with. Do you catch what Jesus is doing here? He's saying that we can get the Bible right. We can understand the law of God correctly. But if we get love wrong, then we're wrong. If we get the Bible right, but love wrong, then we're wrong. Make sense? Christians lead with love. We love first. This is our starting point. We, we lead with love as we walk in the truth. Okay, let me back up a bit. Why have I decided to tackle one of the hottest topics in our culture today where our culture thinks the church has it all wrong? Why talk about this when actually so few churches are willing to do so? Well, the swing to transgender and non-binary acceptance in our culture has really happened quite rapidly. And then last June, uh, being Pride Month, with one week in particular devoted to Pride, the sudden 
prioritization of a, a, a particular narrative on transgender issues as the only correct narrative caught churches and Christian parents totally off guard. We, we had never been there before. And uh, <clears throat> if you pushed against what was going on, you were dismissed, not listened to. You're, you're just a homophobic bigot who, who needs to be canceled and, and has no place at the table for influencing how our schools and culture should be shaping, shaping our children. I mean, case closed. I mean, parents I know who tried, they, they didn't get very far. And quite frankly, some Christians reacted like good old Pharisees and in the day of Jesus and just erupted with self-righteous anger. Others held it together better and most just threw up their hands in hopes that maybe it'll go away. And for those promoting LGBTQ2++ values, you have to understand that most of them see this as the most loving way that they can help so many teens in particular, but kids and adults as well. In their hearts, they mean well. They just want kids to hurt less and live their best lives. Right now, our Fort City team is almost finished reading a book together by Preston Sprinkle, who heads up the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. The book is called Embodied Transgender Identities, The Church and What the Bible Has to Say. It's a great book. It's not an easy read, but it's a worthwhile read. And a lot of what I'm going to say will be shaped by this book. I also listened this past week to a podcast by Preston Manning that he did with a guy named Andrew Bunt. Bunt has just written a shorter, easier to read book called Finding Your Best Identity, a short introduction to identity, sexuality, and gender. I haven't read that book, but I've ordered it. But I found the podcast to be helpful as I prepared for this message. I'm thinking many of you might find this book the better read being a bit shorter. Today, I'm just dealing with the issue of trans, non-binary, and fluid sexual identities that has become such a passionate issue in the last couple of years. I am not dealing with gay and lesbian sexuality. It's not really the same issue. And putting them together like our culture is doing right now is not, in my view, really all that helpful. I have spoken on the gay issue in the past, and I'm sure I will again, just not today. So today, the focus is on the plethora of gender identities that our kids are being told that as they get older, say in high school, they will need to choose from. So what happens sometimes uh, in our schools, say a kid in grade two will be told, yeah, don't call yourself a boy or a girl yet, just wait until you get a little bit older when you can figure that out. Let me first try to define transgender. Transgender is an umbrella term to describe a person who feels their gender identity is not in alignment with their biological sex. So I asked Google how many transgender identities there are, and the first number Google came up with was 15. Then I found 16 definitions adding the indigenous to spirit identity. And then I found a list of 72 different identities, and this is important. Hang on to this because I think this is helpful for those of us raised with a more traditional biblical understanding of sexuality. Another term is non-binary. This refers to the wide range of gender identities that are not exclusively male or female or masculine or feminine. Gender dysphoria is a psychological term for the distress some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. 
And what our culture is doing right now to help reduce this sense of dysphoria or stress is to say to a young person as they become teens, hey, look inside. Look deeply inside. Whatever you're feeling is who you are. Just be who you are, and then you will live your best life. Now, we are taking this just be who you are pretty far right now. So much so that in Alberta, Fort McMurray as well, there are reports of girls who identify as dogs wearing choke collars and dog ears and who are barking at other kids and they're being allowed to drink water from doggy bowls. And if I'm hearing the story right, there is not a lot of permission out there for a teacher to explore if there are any negative contributing factors to this behavior. The focus is on allowing a kid to express themselves however they feel so that family issues, depression, issues of trauma and so on, they take a back seat if they get any seat at all. It's called the affirmative approach. You are who you feel you are. And to live your best life, you simply live out how you feel. And we just kind of let it go at that. And we don't often touch possible negative contributing factors. Now, as followers of Jesus, what we need to do is listen and love and care first, not preach and condemn. Our youth group needs to be a safe place for such a person to explore their identity. In fact, the church should be the safest place in the world for anyone to explore their identity. Now, with all I've said, some of you don't have a clue where I'm going and you're worried. So let me get us rooted in the Bible. Let's talk about what the Bible says about sexuality and what the Bible says about gender. We'll go right back to the first chapter of the book of, of, the book of Genesis where we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is God's original design. Humankind created as either male or female. It paints a picture of the world before sin entered into the world and when creation fell and all was distorted by the power of sin. This is the ideal before sin entered our world. After the first sin of Adam and Eve, as sin enters the entire world, the whole story of the Bible is how our God, who is in crazy in love with us, works with us, and helps us to navigate our own broken lives in the middle of living in a sin-wrecked world. Now about Genesis 1, let me make this statement. Male and female in Genesis 1 are categories of sex, not gender. They are a description of biological sex. And sexual biological difference is critical to understanding who we are. The Bible is clear. We are created male or female. This is core to our identity, but is a description of sex, not gender. Oh, and this doesn't rule out the reality that intersex persons exist biologically with a mix of chromosomes, hormones, and so on. This is not normal, but intersex persons very much exist. However, it's not the issue we're dealing with today. I, I just can't cover it all. Back to Genesis 1.27. I want to throw in a thought here. This is one of the most powerful and progressive statements in the Bible. 
In a world in which this was written and most of our human history, women have been viewed as lesser beings. God declares that his image is found equally in women as in men. It's a powerful statement. Now today, our culture separates our biological sex from our gender. This is a relatively new phenomenon. And when you read your Bible, it never talks about or imagines a situation when someone's gender identity is at odds with their biological sex. And this got me thinking. At one of my first men's wings nights here at Fort City, we, we sometimes do these guys' wing nights in various pubs around town, and the discussion at this one was, what is a blue job? And what is a pink job? What is the guy expected to do in the home? And what is the woman expected to do? And not everyone had the same answers. But stereotypically, you hear things like, the guy puts out the garbage, and the woman puts the kids to bed. But then one of the guys would say, hey, I put the kids to bed. That's my job. And another guy would say, I can't remember when I last put out the garbage. Several years ago. We had a guy apply to be our family minister's pastor. And as I interviewed this guy and asked various probing uh, questions, I discovered that this guy grew up as a girl. He, he told me that he felt like a man trapped in a woman's body. So in his late teens, he began the medical process to, trans to transition from being a woman to a man. And if you were to meet him, he is now a bald, bearded guy with some very manly tattoos there is no way you would mistake him for a woman. I asked him lots of questions about why he wanted to transition, and he told me uh, one of the reasons he, he wanted to move to Fort McMurray was because there was a lot in the male culture of our city that appealed to him. He wondered if I might take him out hunting and show him how to shoot a gun. That seemed really exciting to him. Our car show was so awesome. And he listed off a bunch of other activities that men do that he wanted to do. It was stuff like that that convinced him that he was a guy, that he was a guy, not a woman. And these feelings, they were intense. And as I listened to him define what it means for him to be a man, the things that he wanted to do, the thought crossed my mind, there's not a thing he thinks men do that women don't do. Not every woman, okay? But women put cars in our car show. They do. They're a minority, yes, but they do. And there are women in this church who hunt. More men hunt, but women do too. Women rock around here at being heavy equipment operators, right? But this guy felt an incongruence between what he believed made a woman a woman and what made a man a man. But where does that incongruence come from? I would like to gently suggest that a whole lot of what's happening in the trans, non-binary, fluid gender world are feelings deeply rooted in cultural sexual stereotypes. That doesn't mean that a person's sense of gender dysphoria isn't real with very deep, powerful feelings. But sometimes, I'd like to gently suggest these feelings are wrapped up in traditional stereotypes that leave them feeling like they don't fit. Friends, stereotypes are very powerful. It's no secret that I like guns, hunting and quadding and other stereotypical male pursuits. Gutting a deer or a moose with all the blood and guts is a joyful experience for me. 
But it's also no secret that Lucas doesn't like any of that. Although his son Justice is pushing him to at least go fishing, Lucas is an artist, a musician. He is interpersonally far more sensitive than I am. He'll cry more quickly than I will. Heck, he'll cry more quickly than Adrian will. <laughs> am I more male and Lucas less male? No, that's not it. Okay, I identify with King David when he leads an army into battle and wins. I identify with the courage of David when he plants a rock into Goliath's forehead, cuts the guy's head off, and parades around the cowering army of Israel. I, I hope that's not scaring you. Lucas identifies with King David the musician, the writer of many psalms, the deeply mystical guy when it comes to faith. Maybe King David was trans. No, I don't think that's the explanation. What's going on? While the Bible talks very clearly that we are created biologically male and female and that we are to find our identity in our biological sex, the Bible gives very little in the way of definitive definitions about gender roles. Now, some of you were raised in churches that talked about biblical men and biblical women. Maybe you went to a men's retreat or a woman's retreat on the biblical man and the biblical woman. But what these churches have done for years now is to take cultural sexual stereotypes and then try and find a Bible character who matched the stereotype and then call that biblical. But these stereotypes only exist because they tend to resonate with the majority of people. They're not wrong. They resonate with many. But the Bible never prescribes these stereotypes to define what it means to be masculine or feminine. You can ask me for the scripture later if you want, but trust me, in the Bible, men kiss other men. Men cry. They are tender, and God calls men to be tender-hearted. They are profoundly emotional. I mean, read the Psalms. They are called to turn the other cheek, to love and not kill their enemies, to weep with those who weep, to raise up and teach children, to be sensitive, to be kind, and to be peacemakers. Women in the Bible. Well, read all about the Proverbs 31 woman. This chapter defies typical feminine stereotypes. She's the provider of food for her household. She runs a business selling linen garments for a profit. She's wise, hardworking, has strong arms, and engages in social justice in her spare time. And women in the Bible sometimes did things we don't consider all that feminine. They fight battles and win wars sometimes by smashing tent pegs through the skulls of men, right? unmarried businesswoman like Lydia. They are fearless like the three women all named Mary who stood by Jesus at the cross after most of the men had scattered. Many wealthy women followed Jesus and funded his ministry. Friends, most gender stereotypes come from culture, not the Bible. They do now and they did at the time of Jesus. In the Roman world of Jesus, men were expected to be hairy-chested, sexually-charged, domineering guys. And real men were military men. Real men did not cry or show public affection. Real men did not honor lower-class people, the poor, the marginalized, the children. Real men would not have washed another man's feet. Enter Jesus. Jesus not only turns over tables in the temple, a very masculine thing to do, 
but he also overturned social views about masculinity and femininity. Jesus publicly wept over Jerusalem, and get this, he longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus could be very motherly. Was Jesus masculine when he aggressively chewed out the religious leaders? But then he let others slap him in the face and smack him on the head, and he rarely stood up for his personal rights. He washes feet, he touches sick people, shows compassion to sinful women, loves children, and on and on. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being a man who loves sports and rough and tumble play. There's nothing wrong with being a woman who wants to stay at home and raise the kids. The Bible is incredibly liberating about how men and women can act. The stereotypes are generally okay, and the opposite to the stereotypes are generally okay. This is why almost every command, not every command, but almost every command in the Bible is not tailored to a specific sex. Men and women are equally called to live and love like Jesus. Men and women are equally called to be holy. And those gender-specific commands, when you find them, most often they go both ways. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are for both men and women. Paul never said only women are to love one another. Only women are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The Bible is far more concerned that we be godly, not stereotypically masculine or feminine. When I think about what is masculine and what is feminine, the stereotypes that are all around that, truth be told, we are all a bit trans. None of us fit the stereotypes perfectly. And how the Bible calls us to behave transcends those stereotypes. Now, would you be careful on how you quote me on this? Fort City Pastor says we are all trans, okay? just Friends, who you are is a gift from God. Your identity as male or female is a gift from God. And... If you choose to follow Jesus, here's what the Apostle Paul says happens to your identity. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, a new identity. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. When you choose to follow Jesus, Jesus comes into your life and does a work of transformation and your identity now includes the fact that you are a child of God. So as Christians, we, we don't choose our identity. Uh, that burden is not put on us. God gives us our identity, right? Uh, we bear God's image as male or female. We are children of God. But when we look at the transgender conversation, what we're finding is that gender stereotypes are core to what is going on. And what our culture is saying is that if you are drawn to one of these stereotypes, this might mean that you are a girl, or you might be a boy, or you might be a combination of boy and girl. And you have to decide for yourself who you really are. Identity must be, is something that must be discovered, and it doesn't have to be related to your biological sex. And again, according to Google, there might be as many as 72 possibilities, and yeah, they could change as you get older. This is not the only factor that is driving the current transgender conversation, but I would argue probably one of the stronger underlying factors. 
Other drivers are things like life experiences, trauma, mental health issues, abuse. They all play a role. If you're on the autism spectrum, studies say that has an impact. And yes, there would be other stuff. And yes, there can be physical, biological issues at play. But imagine if we could pull our culture back a bit and allow biological boys and biological girls to express who they are well outside of the bounds of gender stereotypes. Friends, it is not helpful to take a kid's preference for dolls, pink and long hair, as evidence that they are really a girl, since it simply relies on stereotypes to define what it means to be a girl, right? And yes, <clears throat> it is all much more complex than what I have time to be able to unpack. So I just particularly want to get you thinking about the role of stereotypes in this. At the same time, we must not diminish the real felt experience of a teen or young adult. What they are feeling are their true feelings. But what they're feeling might be a reflection that their personality just isn't congruent with many stereotypical masculine or feminine traits. And friends, that's just fine. That is okay. That is how God made you. Let me ask this. <clears throat> Are stereotypes causing gender incongruence or is gender incongruence causing people to feel drawn towards stereotypes or, is, or are the two co-related? Complex stuff, right? And how many 15-year-old girls who identify as non-binary will have the exact same label for themselves when they're 48? Factually, it's a very small percentage. I want to bring to you some, to some more research on this, recent research on all this, that is part of something called the CAS report that is currently right now having a huge impact on policymakers and government in Britain. In Britain, it had become policy much earlier than in Canada to encourage kids to look inside and take a look at what they feel and have them identify with what they feel. It was believed that this would save kids from much pain and even suicide. The motive was simply to help kids who were experienced gender incongruence feel better. They simply took an affirmative approach to whatever a kid or teen was feeling, and then they began to fairly quickly set up social and even medical interventions to help support these feelings. And what the CAS research discovered, looking at about 10 years of data, is that what most young people will experience if these interventions don't take place, you know, things from pronoun change to medical sexual transition, if they don't happen, the feelings of discomfort for most of these kids will just naturally resolve. It's not all, but their findings is most. And that is a radical change in thinking in Britain. You can uh, Google this interim February 2022 CAS report and read it for yourself. It's not without its detractors, but it appears to have won the day in Britain, and policy is changing there right now. The final report is due this year, but they're already acting on it. Friends, as they studied what had become the dominant approach to working with trans-identifying youth, where you assume that what a young person says about what they're feeling is in fact who they are, where you do use names and pronouns as they request, and from there you move fairly quickly to various forms of social and medical intervention, they discovered it isn't happening, it's just not helping, 
that kids are not feeling better, suicide numbers are not being impacted, on and on and on. So what's happening right now is they're flipping things around. And in the process, they have decided to close, I think it's happening this month, their largest gender treatment center, the Tavistock Clinic, concluding that it's doing more harm than good, and they're going to open up new clinics with a whole new set of guidelines. They're moving from the current default position being the affirmative approach to what is now called a non-affirmative approach. So that now in Britain, only extreme cases of demonstrative clinical distress will result in names and pronouns um, uh, being used in line with what the young person wants. What they're going to do is they're going to stick with names and pronouns in their biological sex. They no longer believe that changing pronouns is the best way to go. What they've concluded is that medical interventions like hormone blockers or supplements are just dangerous experimentation on kids with inconclusive, non-inconsistent clinical proof. That sex change treatment and surgeries are incredibly dangerous and potentially harmful, that all we're really doing is experimenting on our kids. It is a complete swing because when they did their research, the evidence to them was clear that social conditioning with social intervention, let alone medical intervention, has a big negative impact on kids wrestling with gender incongruence. If the CAS report is right, we now know that social interventions, pronoun changes, calling kids to make a decision about who they are as they become teens and then to live out of that decision does not lead to a happier life. And if that's true, what we're doing in Canada is not the best way to treat young people. It's a complex report. I'm not doing it justice. And it's only an interim report that came out last February, but I find it, find it fascinating. It pushes back pretty strong on what we're doing in our schools and culture right now in Canada. The CAS report also noted that British gender services were dealing much more with kids who had a much higher level of health diagnosis like mental health issues, of ASD, that's kids somewhere on the autism spectrum, traits of traumatic experiences. And, and as they looked at this disproportionate relationship, they asked the question, why is this? And they concluded that these types of things tend to get overlooked because gender incongruence just takes over. And in the process, we're not helping these kids deal with the even bigger issues that are plaguing their lives. So when a kid in Alberta is barking like a dog, wearing a choke collar, has big floppy ears, um, and is drinking out of a doggy dish, should we not take a look at what might be behind that behavior rather than say, hey, just let it go. Let them identify however they want. So Britain appears to be moving towards a much more holistic approach to all this than we are in Canada. And now what's happening in Britain is they are developing policies to figure out how to safeguard young people from the damage taking an affirmative approach does, while we in Canada threaten the jobs of any teacher or social worker who does not take an affirmative approach to gender incongruence. I cannot overemphasize that British research looking at the past 10 years has concluded that the way they have been treating kids with gender confusion is not based on evidence and is potentially very harmful. I'll just leave it at that. Now, all of this is totally meaningless 
when it's your kid who comes out to you as trans or non-binary or gender fluid? How do you respond? When it's your kid, this is not a medical clinical debate. When it's your kid, we just want to love our child deeply and, and help them experience the deep love that Jesus has for them. So if your child comes out, how do you love your child well? First, think. Don't panic. Don't think that the world has fallen apart. One key thing is just to talk to your child and find out more from them. And hey, don't assume that they know what they mean when they say they are trans. Just spend lots of time listening before you say anything. You might say, you now identify as trans. Help me to understand what you mean by that. You say that you actually feel that you are a boy. Help me to understand what you mean by that. How long have you felt like this? What has it been like for you to feel this way? This is Christian parenting. You love first. You strive to build the relationship. What you're doing is deeply experience, deeply understanding their real experience. And what you're showing your child is that even if you might not agree with them and how they're viewing themselves and the decisions they want to make about how they are going to live, you do look at them with love and respect and let them give voice to their feelings. And you don't do as some Christian parents have done in the past. You don't say, you're not trans, don't be silly, changing your name, no way, we don't do that in this house. That just crushes a young person. Instead, you say, hey, that sounds really hard for you. Please tell me more of what it's been like. Help me to understand what you mean when you say you feel this way. And this might create some openings. I feel like a girl because of this and this and this. And you get to say, well, why can't boys be like that? And you plant some contrarian thoughts in their mind. And we wrestle together about stereotypes and other stuff depending on what the issue is. And yes, praying is an obvious thing to do. And we'll talk about prayer at the end of this series, but you need wisdom from God on this. And be prepared for the fact that this is going to be a long journey. Something like gender incongruence doesn't generally resolve quickly. And so you walk alongside of them, keeping the doors of relationship open, loving them as God loves them. And you need to be aware of what else might be at play. All the stats show that there are often co-conditions, health issues, mental health issues, phobias, trauma, depression, all these things are often present. And you, the parent, are aware that your young person was diagnosed with depression or there is some ASD or autistic characteristics there. So you need to be aware of them and include them in the conversation, continuing to explore these issues and get support for these issues. Caring for the underlying issues is critical. It is the loving thing to do. To ignore the underlying issues is not loving. And a final thing that is key for parents is to not let gender become the be-all and end-all of the relationship. A, a kid concludes that they're transgender. That becomes their world. It just does. And, and they fall into an online world so often where that is all that matters. And they give up on other hobbies and sports. They even give up on other friends, other people. And, and they descend into a world that is gender, 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 gender. 
So you encourage your kids to stay involved in their hobbies and sports. You encourage them to keep a broad circle of friends, even get out to youth group. And you just keep talking to them about lots of other things that are not gender. You just want to keep their world broader. And this shows that you are not obsessed about their gender, that you love them beyond the gender question. Okay, let me just leave it at that. Sorry that this message has been so long, and sorry that this message was not long enough. Sorry that I've left so many things unsaid, and sorry that I've said so many things that can be misquoted. Friends, we are Christians. Christians live and love like Jesus. And Jesus is crazy in love with broken people just like you and me who don't have life figured out. We love first. We navigate the truth of God's word with love. Just as Jesus loved us first and provided a way for us while we were yet sinners so that we could be with him. And yes, hear this. We love the people in our city who think differently than us by gracefully helping them to see how to best love their kids in these confusing days. If we can show that another way is best, that is the loving thing to do. But we're not arrogant or pushy. We gracefully dialogue about an alternative perspective on what we believe is best for our kids. And we pray because God is real. God has not lost control of his world. And more than any of us, our God wants what's best for our kids. Done. Will you join me in a time of prayer? Our Father God, yeah, we thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, each one of us. Yes, male and female. But God, you made us with such a diversity of ways of expressing what that means. Help us to become content with how you've made us. And teach us to be sensitive and compassionate to those who are struggling with their identity. May we be a people who love first as we honor the teaching of your word. And help us to gently, lovingly share our message with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.